WRFI Community Radio News is made possible by listeners like you. Help us tell important stories about your community. Head to wrfi.org slash donate. And I'm Maureen Gilroy. After the headline news, you'll hear an interview of Jack Goldman, the founder of The Bookery, a local independent bookstore that for 45 years sold rare and used books in Ithaca. It closed last winter. But first, here's the weather forecast courtesy of the National Weather Service. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and windy with a high in the mid-50s. Tomorrow night, lows in the mid-30s. Looking forward to Saturday, mostly sunny with a high in the high 40s. And now here's tonight's news for Ithaca and Watkins Glen. A public hearing for a special use permit application requested by the Alcohol and Drug Council, ADC, of Tompkins County, was held November 9th by the Village of Lansing Planning Board. If allowed, Phase 2 of the ADC's Open Access Center will move forward. This phase includes renovation of the second floor of the facility to provide more areas for patients to sleep, according to the Ithaca Times. The permit review process has been delayed due to questions about how to classify the center. It could be viewed as a, quote, hospital special care facility or an assisted living facility, unquote. On Monday, members of the ADC and local medical care providers supported the project being classified as a special care facility or assisted living facility. The developers of two separate large mixed-use projects asked for tax abatements at the Tompkins County Industrial Development Authority, or IDA, meeting yesterday. Those projects could potentially change Ithaca's skyline. According to the Ithaca Voice, IDA Board of Directors will begin reviewing the application for the Ithacan Tower at 215 East State Street and Arnott's plans for mixed-use development at 430 to 444 West State Street. The Ithacan Tower is being planned to consist of 10 floors of apartments with about 200 total units, including studio and two-bedroom apartments. It will be built to 2025 Ithaca Green Building Code standards using electric air source heat pumps. 40 units must be affordable at 80% area median income. Developers are asking for a 30-year payment in lieu of taxes or a pilot agreement. Arnott is planning to have 129 apartment units and 4,800 square feet of commercial space. Building costs are expected to be $39.3 million, and they plan to exceed the 2025 Green Building Code. They are seeking a 10-year CTAP, Financial Need, Enhanced Energy, Large Multifamily Project, and sales tax exemption on building materials, as well as state tax exemptions on mortgage recording, recording filing. Local residents can view the IDA hearing at the Tompkins County IDA YouTube page. Interested persons can submit comments on these projects to Ina Arthur at inaa at ithacaareaed.org. In other development news, due to Ithaca's housing shortages, real estate developers are taking advantage of the stable, higher education-based economy and large commuter population, reports the Ithaca Times. 
Peter Dugo, president of Arnott Realty, is one of the developers that wants to expand operations in Ithaca due to the stable economy. The company created boathouse landing high-end apartments and paid $3.79 million for the eight acres recently vacated by the State Department of Transportation on 3rd Street. The company is focusing on growing their operation by developing multifamily affordable properties downtown as mixed-use retail and residential spaces. On Wednesday at 3.45 p.m., Ithaca police were dispatched after there were multiple 911 calls about a fight in the Speedway gas station parking lot at 366 Elmira Road. According to IPD, one subject was reported to have a sword. A report following the incident reveals that the fight was due to a domestic dispute between three people. During the fight, one person was punched, choked, and thrown to the ground. A machete was used to puncture a tire and threaten a female. Two people were arrested at the scene and later arraigned in Ithaca City Court. Authorities in Tompkins County report that an elderly woman who had been reported missing yesterday has been found. Public safety officials called off the search earlier this afternoon. Uh, looking at the local COVID-19 caseload, the latest numbers released yesterday from the Tompkins County Health Department indicate that there are 19 additional positives and 9 new recoveries. That's 1-9-19. According to the County Health Department, that leaves 73 active cases of COVID-19 in Tompkins. The Health Department also announced that the Cayuga Health Sampling Site will be open for extended hours on Saturday, November 14th, from 8 a.m. to 12 noon. In Skylar County, there are eight new cases of COVID-19 and 29 total active cases reported as of today, according to their health departments. In New York State news. As President-elect Joe Biden is preparing for his first day in office, his first task will be appointing his White House staff and cabinet members. According to the Albany Times Union, a number of New Yorkers are being considered for presidential administration jobs. Political analysts are discussing Governor Andrew Cuomo's potential fit as U.S. Attorney General due to his tenure as New York State Attorney General from 2006 to 2010. Cuomo was also the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under former President Bill Clinton. Other notable New Yorkers being studied by analysts include Randy Weingarten, the President of American Federation of Teachers, who could be a fit for Education Secretary, and Tony Blinken, a New York City native, who held multiple foreign policy positions in Obama's administration. President-elect Biden announced his chief of staff as longtime aide Ronald Klain on Wednesday, and Biden is expected to announce more picks by week's end. Getting out of your gym membership in New York State could be easier now, reports Time Warner Cable News. A law backed by Senator Brad Hoyleman and Assemblyman Jeff Dinowitz requires businesses to clearly state automatic renewals in terms of agreements to prevent charging people without consent. It also states that people can end their contract online if the initial contract was also online. Toll-free numbers or emails from the facility must be provided to members for cancellation. These measures were suggested after people realized how difficult it is to end gym memberships, which usually requires in-person meetings or a certification letter. Governor Andrew Cuomo announced new restrictions on bars and restaurants today in an effort to combat the spread of the novel coronavirus. Beginning November 13th, Friday, bars and restaurants throughout the state are to close at 10 p.m., according to the Ithaca Journal. They will be allowed to provide pickup for food from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m., but no in-person dining or drinking is allowed. 
The new restrictions apply to any entertainment venues that have a liquor license, as well as to gyms and fitness centers. Cuomo has also reduced the number of people allowed to gather indoors in private residences from 50 to 10 people. These restrictions come after the state has reached its highest rate of new infections since May of this year. The state of Georgia is recounting ballots for president for its post-election audit, and progressive groups recommend candidates for cabinet and other top government positions. More on the latest U.S. election news, courtesy of our friends over at Pacifica Network and the Public News Service. Welcome to 2020 Talks, where we track the 2020 elections in uncharted territory. With the margin being so close, it will require a full, by-hand recount in each county. This will help build confidence. It will be an audit, a recount, and a recanvas all at once. Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, knows recounting his state's presidential race will take a lot of resources. With record voter turnout, Anna Dennis with Common Cause Georgia says it's going to be tough. So we have over 5 million ballots that counties have to actually count. So it's going to be very time-consuming. It's going to be definitely costly for counties to pay in the overtime to get this done because it has to be done by November 20th. This extra work is on top of the Senate runoffs in January that could continue GOP control of the Senate or end it. With almost all the ballots counted, President-elect Joe Biden is currently ahead in Georgia by about 14,000 votes. But even without Georgia's 16 electoral votes, Biden has more than enough to win the Electoral College. Still, the Trump campaign continues to file lawsuits in states they lost by close margins. Yesterday, it was Michigan. So far, the cases have been largely dismissed for lack of evidence. But the president and his allies' baseless claims of fraud, both before and after the election, have consequences. Recent polling from The Economist and YouGov shows more than 8 in 10 Trump voters don't trust the result. That hurts America in many ways, says Julia Helwig, professor at the University of South Dakota. We need to be a legitimate democracy that other countries can look up to and that our allies uh, can feel good about. And so the implications are extraordinarily widespread. Beyond the global repercussions, Helwig says the rhetoric can lead to more discord throughout the country. Yesterday, to honor Veterans Day, Trump went to Arlington National Cemetery in D.C. Biden paid his respects at the Philadelphia Korean War Memorial. The Biden transition team announced their future White House chief of staff, Ron Klain, a veteran Democratic operative who once served as one of Biden's top Senate aides. And two prominent progressive groups gave their recommendations for cabinet and other top government positions, suggesting Senators Bernie Sanders for the Labor Department and Elizabeth Warren for Treasury. Along with Justice Democrats, the Sunrise Movement is pushing for a cabinet-level office to address climate change. Here's Sunrise Movement's John Paul Mejia. Now that we've got him elected, he has to do everything in his power to address this crisis starting on day one. While Biden hasn't embraced the full Green New Deal, Mejia says these measures are a move in the right direction. We are, you know, not like overjoyed and celebrating victory and saying hooray right now, the work is over. But we have something to work with now and we have more ability to leverage power where it's necessary under a Biden administration. From Pacifica Network and Public News Service and produced for television by Free Speech TV, I'm Lily Bolke. Thanks to Mike Moen with Greater Dakota News Service and thanks for listening. That concludes our headline news for tonight. Coming up, an interview with Jack Goldman, founder of the Bookery Independent Bookstore in Ithaca. That's after the break on WRFI Community Radio News. Stay with us.
by um, Allison Brown, and this is WRFI Community Radio News. I'm Ed von Atterkass. And I'm Maureen Gilroy. The bookery was a beloved local entity in Ithaca for 45 years, until it closed its doors for good in December 2019. The store shelves held many unique or hard-to-find books across a wide variety of fields and genres, thanks to the work of its founder, Jack Goldman. Head of the store's closing, WRFI News Director Michaela Savitt sat down with Jack to look back on his career as a journalist and used book collector. This report first aired in November of last year. I've always loved books. As a child, I don't think we had books, but I had an uncle who was a bibliophile. He was a colorful character. He was a very simple man, a hat salesman. Every day after work, he would go down to Fourth Avenue, which was where all the bookstores in New York were located, browse the bookshelves, come home, have some simple supper, and then sit in the chair and read. For every possible occasion, he would give me a book birthdays, holidays, whatever excuse he had. He only lived a few blocks from where I was living. Nevertheless, he always wrapped them carefully and sent them in the mail, so they were very special to me. Of course, from there, he read a lot and went to school. Then in high school, Jack became friends with the son of a very successful bookseller based in Los Angeles. That man's name was Jake Zeitlin. And he had a store on one of the main boulevards in Los Angeles where he specialized in art books, architecture, and rare books. And by rare, I mean really rare. When I was a kid, he would go to Europe almost every summer and come back with a ship container load of first editions of Isaac Newton, Galileo, all kinds of incredible rare finds. He just created a, an incredible collection, partly because, unfortunately, they were available after World War II, which he sold both in the store where I worked as, just as a packer in high school, but he sold a lot to libraries, including Cornell. That would later be the same university Jack returned to in 1965 for graduate school. He was pursuing a degree in German literature, this was also the beginning and then subsequent year of the heightening of the Vietnam War. In our conversation, Jack described himself somewhat of a political animal. He says he joined the Students for Democratic Society, also known as SDS, at the university, and then became heavily involved in the anti-war effort. After one year of grad school, I thought, just uh, take a break and devote myself entirely to anti-war activities. I was one of the people who started what was called the Glad Day Press, and that was an alternative press on Stewart Avenue. We had our own printing press. We had our own press camera, which ran a wooden rail. It was something we rescued from a loft in New York City. It looked like it came out of the Smithsonian Institute or something. But it worked. It had a wonderful German Zeiss lens. We published pamphlets, leaflets, posters, and even a few books. We printed anti-war literature, not only for the local community and Cornell, but for campuses throughout the country that were involved in the anti-war movement. Now, Jack says this was his full-time job for a few years, and at the time was the editor for a popular weekly newspaper called Dateline Ithaca. 
My focus in the anti-war movement was somewhat apart from the main thrust of SDS on campus. Since I was a grad student and somewhat older than most of the SDS undergrads, I had had other experiences before I came here, one of which was uh, out of high school. I worked at General Motors for a year, and that changed my whole outlook on life. I was a member of a very militant union. Uh, we had a wildcat strike. It was a time where, before automation, where working in a factory like that was pretty brutal. Jack says his focus at the time was to relate anti-war activities on campus with issues in the greater Ithaca area. To do so, they launched another project, a multi-purpose converted school bus they called the Bookmobile. We staffed it with people who could do welfare counseling, legal counseling, health counseling, and we ran it in mostly the rural areas surrounding Ithaca, where we made weekly stops, which soon became regular stops, especially people loved to stock up on children's books. Uh, Sometimes they did take the time to talk with some of the counselors on the bus. So we did that for a couple of years. After a couple of years of that type of work, I got an offer from Professor Ben Nichols, who was in the engineering department and later became the first and I think the only socialist mayor of Ithaca. He invited me to join him in a new program called the Human Affairs Program. And it was an innovative effort to combine serious classroom work for Cornell students with time in the community in various local projects. We established the prototype for what later became the Lehman Alternative School. But at that time when we started, it was located downtown, and it was an alternative junior high school. I did that for a couple of years, and by that time I was married, I had a young son, and I thought, hmm, I better earn some serious money if I'm going to do this. Jack thought back to his experience working for Jake Seitlin. So he went back to Los Angeles, told Jake he was interested in starting a used bookstore in Ithaca, and went from there. And at that time, there were, uh, I don't know, seven or eight used bookstores already existing. But I thought maybe I could take a slightly different approach. In fact, that's what attracted me to the uh, used book business is that uh, in those days, before the homogenization of the Internet, every used bookstore reflected the tastes and knowledge of the the people running it. And so uh, there was room for plenty. In fact, the more the merrier. They became a magnet to attract people who would like to go from one to the other, like my old uncle. (laughs) And that's when building up the bookery one jumped into motion. I spoke with Jake. He said he thought he could be helpful. He got on the phone. He talked to some professors at Cornell. I met with some of them who had book collections of their own. Some of them were on the cusp of retirement. So they sold me some books, and I got started. That was in 1975. I started in the DeWitt Mall in what was then the old school safe for the junior high school. It was a tiny space across the hall from where the bookery is now located, and it had no uh, no windows outside. The door looked like a bank vault. Uh, You had to have a combination to, to get in. Occasionally when I was there, kids liked to come by, slam the door, and spin the lock, and I was locked in. (laughs) So that that was fun. Uh, Eventually, the door had to be removed because it had a low height. One of my favorite customers, who was over six feet tall, 
turned and banged his head on the thing. So, so we had to take the door out. And many of the shelves I had custom built carpenters that I came to know. We have shelves that I bought when I first started in 1975 from the bookseller who happened to be retiring at that time in Ithaca. He told me that the shelves I bought for him, which are built out of solid chestnut, came from the original Tompkins County Library all the way back uh, in the late 19th century, and they're irreplaceable. Those shelves also were making available. So any of the books that aren't claimed by customers, where are they going? Many of them will go to the library book sale. Many of them will go back home. To me, <laughs> as I say, from just looking in the art section, there's a wonderful two-volume catalog raisonné of uh, Turner, the artist, uh, who happens to be one of my favorites. So many of them, if they don't sell, I'd be more than happy to take back home. <laughs> The Bookery's current space is dubbed the Bookery 2, located in the DeWitt Mall. The Bookery 1, which Jack was describing before, is now occupied by Buffalo Street Books. Here's Jack. When the present space we occupied became available two years later is when we moved across the hall. And gradually, we took over two, uh, two other stores. So we occupied the space of three stores. We quickly needed to acquire inventory, which was a lot of fun. I did a lot of traveling, New England, the West Coast. was able to stock the store with, at least in, in my opinion, were interesting used books. We kind of acquired the reputation, and I can understand why, but I, I always tried to shake it off that we were a, a rare book store. Having worked for what was really a rare bookstore, I knew that wasn't true. Uh, We had a higher percentage of rare books and certainly scholarly books than most of the other local bookstores. I soon learned that as soon as you said rare books, people looked scared, assured them that we had plenty of books that were just plain old used books, (laughs) and and please come in. (laughs) Now, uh, why do you think people look scared? They associate rare with expensive. So even though most of our books were priced, if anything, competitively and often lower than some of the other stores, uh, we sort of had this reputation of being a store for specialists. And whatever I did, I couldn't quite shake that <laughs> that reputation. We benefited from it, no, qu- no question, in some ways. But one of the reasons I decided to, to do this was I like having a place where people can come in, bookstores, uh, places where people can browse. The main point of a, a bookstore is one of discovery. You can come in thinking you want a book. If you take just a few minutes to browse, you might discover other books that you weren't aware of or dimly aware of. That's why I like having open shelves and open store. And secondly, I like talking to people who come in. Bookstores attract all kinds of interesting people, learned people. It's a lot of fun to be here. I've got in front of me here the Book Press, another paper that you ran in your career here in town. Now, Jack, can you tell me how you first took an interest in journalism? I went to UCLA 
sort of off and on. I finally did graduate from there after many interruptions, including some years in Europe, which is where I got into German and German literature and that kind of thing. And at UCLA, I worked for the school newspaper called the, the Daily Bruin. And that was back in the days of the McCarthy era. It was a very exciting time to do any kind of journalism, and we were no exception. In fact, we were so vigorous in our points of view that the chancellor of the California University System shut the newspaper down, and we had a public funeral for the paper, and then we established an alternative daily Bruin, which we distributed uh, on campus. Before I went to Europe, I worked for McGraw-Hill in a quasi-journalistic uh, effort, and so it seemed natural since I had the bookstore and there was nothing quite like what I had in mind to start a paper that would feature certainly articles about books, writers, but also political opinion, cartoons, poetry. And we started out very ambitiously with a 12-page, uh, no, 16-page edition, which we did for a couple of years. We started it in the late 90s. And we distributed it Buffalo, Albany. We had it in bookstores, mailed it to people who wanted to subscribe. It was free. We depended on having some advertising, but it was a store that had to come up with uh, the money to, to run it. To me, that was you know a good expense. I did most of the editing of the paper. It gave me a chance to meet some really wonderful, talented writers, academics who had interests, they were willing to put into print. It became a very popular paper, so it was a whole other dimension, and it made be being in a bookstore even that more interesting for me. Begun to uh, think about things I'm going to do. I've always had a slight interest in doing some writing of my own. I've done a bit. One of my hobbies was uh, writing haiku poetry. <laughs> and uh, other kinds of writing. And I'm still very much interested in world affairs and political affairs. I have, I suppose you could say, a passion for justice. I hope I will be able to connect again with groups that are trying to, to do something politically with which I can identify. So I look forward to reconnecting with people who are doing what I consider to be the work that is necessary to improve society, not least of which is uh, those who are uh, active uh, about climate change and racism. Looking back on your career in this field, what are you going to miss about it? It's mainly the interaction with people I came to know that will be the hardest thing for me to adjust to. You know, many of them have become my friends, it's not like I won't see or hear from them. Uh, the people I've met, the colorful characters I could describe to you, but I don't think I should, <laughs> who always brighten my day or <laughs> from whom I sometimes had to hide. <laughs> but just the casual day-to-day -day experience of meeting new people and old friends, that will require an adjustment. Many of them have made a point of coming in. Um, when I'm here, they, they talk to me and express their regret that the store is closing, of course. We have a little uh, pad for people to write notes, and many have taken the trouble to do that. I've gotten, I don't know how many emails from former customers uh, wishing me well. I feel very good about all that. 
just heard an interview with Jack Goldman, founder of The Bookery Independent Bookstore. WRFI News Director Michaela Savitt spoke with Goldman in November of last year, just before his retirement. And that will do it for our program today. Our website is wrfi.org, where you can take another listen to the original news features by the WRFI News Team. And to get the latest news on the local, regional, and state stories about COVID-19, visit wrfi.org forward slash coronavirus. The headlines at the top of the program were written by WRFI contributors Tessie Devlin, Peter Champelli, and myself. I'm Ed von Tessie Devlin and Esther Rakusen edited today's news items. Today's feature producer was Michaela Savitt, WRFI News Director, Executive Progra- Producer for our program, and Fearless Leader. Maureen Gilroy was my co-anchor today. If you have a question or comment for our other news team, you can reach our team of reporters at news at ithcaradio.org or call and text us at 607-319-5445. We'll be back tomorrow night and every weekday evening at 6 to bring you more of the stories impacting our communities. On behalf of the entire WRFI news team, take care, be well, and have a great evening. One, two, three. WRFI.